Hey, um, some of you may be wondering, how could it take that long to go through any passage in Scripture and uh, uh, understand that uh, I'm not the primary teacher here, Mike Halpin is, if you're new here or visiting or whatever, and uh, Mike and Kathy, are, I think, are out in California right now, uh, and it's taken this long because I only teach about once a month, and occasionally there are some interruptions and that sort of thing, so uh, we're going to move on here through the, the slog of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's, a, it's a blessing, and uh, uh, you may have noticed something, that uh, we're going to go through the same passage that we went through last time. How's that for progress? <laughs> All right. Last time, we dealt with entering the straight gate. That's S-T-R-A-I-T, meaning narrow or difficult. And this time, we're going to look down the narrow road, which you enter through the straight gate. And if you've been a Christ follower for very long, you've probably reached some conclusions or deductions about the straight or the narrow gate. And where's my little thing here? I'm sorry. Yeah. And one of those is that it's not easy. Okay? Uh, poverty of spirit, righteousness, God-centered attitudes, all of these are difficult, if not impossible, without grace. True conversion, or being born again, is a major change in life. You know, I've got to give up my opinions when they're contrary to God's and His standard. And that's something unbelievers don't have to do. I've got to give up my goals and my purposes for my life and I've, I've got to adopt his. And then there's that promise of persecution. Not exactly the American dream, huh? But there is also joy and freedom for his followers. And, and one of the, the greatest sources of joy that we experience as, as his creation is found in close personal relationships. However, the deepest and most impactful joy of all comes from knowing my Creator through Christ. So ask yourself, just how valuable is it to you and to me to receive forgiveness? Because we all need it. Just how valuable is it to overcome increasingly our temptations. Family relationships are very important, but they're not always positive. New relationships can develop through fellowship within Christ. Okay, uh, Mark 10 uh, has a passage in it, and I've summarized what I believe it's saying on the screen. But I'm going to read it to you, and we'll have a, a comment or two about it. It says, starting in verse 29, it says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Okay, has anybody here heard, here heard of a concept called hundredfolding? Okay, 
Uh, anybody here ever gotten a letter from a ministry saying, if you send us some money, you'll get a hundred times that back? Anybody got that? I know I have. All right, well, maybe you guys aren't on the right mailing list, I guess. Okay, well, let's think about that, okay? What's the context of Mark 10? First, if you read it, you've got the rich young man who asked Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And his answer is, for you, young man, it means you sell all of your possessions and you give that money to the poor. He didn't like that answer, so he walked away dejected. And then Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying it's impossible, there's nothing wrong with having wealth, but it's the temptations and the baggage that comes along with wealth that makes it harder. Okay, so I really don't think that Jesus has come up with a fundraising scheme here. In fact, one of the best responses I've ever heard was a pastor friend of mine who when he got one of these letters, based upon this passage, he said, hey, he wrote back and said, hey, if you guys believe this, if this is true, why don't you send me $100 and you'll get 10000 But beyond all that, When you study and you apply God's Word, you see that life is exciting, but it's also coherent. In other words, life only makes sense from God's perspective. However, the less enthusiastic you are about walking down the narrow road with Christ, the more confining and difficult that road will seem. Another thing you'll find uh, with walking the narrow road, is that, you know, it can be lonely. You're not in the majority. And one of the main reasons that Christians lack enthusiasm is because they don't see a lot of other people walking with them. Rather, most are on the broad road. However, we need to remember Paul's words in Romans 3. And he said there, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithful Faithfulness of God. Will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. In other words, who you going to believe? God or man? Okay? We're going to get back to the issues of lies and numbers later. Okay? Another thing you'll find as a seasoned believer is that, you know... You're just not with the popular folks. It's not the mainstream. And in fact, you cannot walk the narrow road if it is your goal to please most people. You know, fads and fashions and current popular philosophy may not be a part of that road. Okay? Jesus told us through the Beatitudes that the only approval that counts is God's. And then he said in Matthew 6, If you do things in order to receive the approval of others, you're not getting it. That's hypocrisy. And now he tells us in in Matthew 7 that the narrow road is not a social superhighway. You know, I think you've probably seen, as I have on the walls of many Christian homes, you've seen the plaque that says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's a great testimony. It's a great testimony. However, an even greater testimony 
is when we as believers stand alone, not with the popular. We stand alone when something is running the other way. The character exemplified in the Sermon on the Mount is too demanding to have universal appeal among people who prefer compromise and serving self. So really, this is a narrow road. Uh, The other thing we learned about the road is that choices have consequences. The roads are not goals in themselves. They each have a destination. The wide one leads to destruction, the narrow to life. The problem is that people, when they start on the wide road, they become so distracted by the, the, the things that they see there that they do not take thought of where they're going. And this can be so among even very, very reasonable people. Sometimes when they're warned, they may deny that destruction lies ahead. How could so many be going in the wrong direction? They may even argue, if they believe that there's a God, that he would never be so cruel as to condemn so many. That love will certainly win out in the end. But Jesus is clear. The choice of roads has consequences. So let's talk a little bit about application, action steps, if you will, okay? I'm not talking about necessarily things you have to do to be saved, but I'm talking about things you need to be doing, thinking about, okay? And the first, of course, for I think most of us have done this, but I'm not sure, is make a decision for Christ. This is not a philosophical issue that we can debate or, or have an intellectual discussion about in some detached manner. Um, Jesus did not and does not say, consider and admire me. Many do admire him. Rather, he says, follow me, believe in me, enter in. These are imperatives. While there is something to be said for folks, unbelievers, who are willing to consider the reasons for the hope that lies within a true Christ follower, That person cannot avoid making a decision. The ultimate test of a decision for Christ is whether it controls his life. It goes beyond understanding what Jesus calls me to do to actually giving myself to that life, come what may. The next step is to seek the straight gate. After considering the gospel and deciding that I must do something about it, the next step is to seek that straight gate. Jesus says, few find it, because there are few who seek it. It's easy for us to listen to the truth and agree to it, and then never doing anything about it. There are those, the lost, who never even consider this. However, there are many who consider, but never seek the straight gate and the narrow way. By seeking, what we're talking about here is seeing the truth, agreeing to it, and then asking myself, what do I need to do to make this my life? Now, starting today and today's Sunday school and for the next several weeks, you're going to be hearing a lot about one guy named Martin Luther, uh, whom God used with others to ignite the Reformation. But 
Luther didn't just wake up one day and get the whole thing. He spent time in a cell fasting, praying, and sweating out what it means to seek to enter into the, through the state straight gate and into the narrow way. Others who followed him, like George Whitfield and John Wesley, they struggled with wrong ways to seek before finding the gate and entering in. Finally, what we have to do is commit to the narrow road, uh, a personal commitment to stay on the road with Christ. Uh, sometimes you may have heard somebody talking to themselves and question their sanity, okay? But less so today with all the devices. You know, you walk down the street and you hear somebody talking. You, who are they talking to? But, but you know, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. But whether you say this audibly or just quietly think this, I think it would be helpful for all of us when we wake up in the morning, say, I am a unique child in the family of God. Christ died for me on the cross, gave me the promise of eternal life. I am now part of his kingdom and not of this world through which I'm just passing as a stranger and a pilgrim. If you do that every single day, it will help you focus and get to, into a practical relationship with God's truth on the narrow road. Next, we want to talk about some of the reasons or arguments to choose and stay on the narrow road. You know, Jesus loves us so much that he doesn't just tell us what to do, but he gives us reasons. He doesn't have to, but he does. Why does he do this? Because he knows how weak and how vulnerable to temptation and how likely to stray we are. So, one of the first things you can do is to consider the character of the two roads or the two types of life. Uh, we see this in the Old Testament, starting in like Psalm 1, uh, where there's a stark contrast between the way of the righteous who delight in God's law, who bear fruit and prosper like a tree planted by a river, as opposed to the wicked whose substance is like the chaff that the wind drives away and they perish. So, the narrow road involves detachment from the world. I didn't say you leave the world, but it's detachment from the world, and you do that, one of the particular ways is through worship. It's very difficult to detach from the world, isn't it, to stop thinking about the things going on, the details of life. But isn't that what we're doing right now? Okay? And anytime you get together in a small group, perhaps, and family devotions, okay? God told us to meet at least one day out of seven to step back, detach from the world, and see it for what it really is, okay? It's hard to see when you're in the middle of the woods. Another issue here is that divine revelation causes narrowness. Now, nobody wants to be called narrow-minded today. But there's no way around it. The word of, word of God, as revealed through the Bible, restricts Christ's followers in what it claims is good and true. We look at the word for, to see what is right and wrong in God's eyes. It's our objective standard so that we're guided neither by the world nor by, nor by our own desires and temptations. This can be difficult. Uh, if, not, if we're not careful... 
C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this about when he was a 13-year-old schoolboy. I was soon altering, I believe, to one does feel. And oh, the relief of it. From the tyrannous noon, like the noonday sun, of revelation, I passed into the cool evening twilight of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed, nothing to be believed, except what was either comforting or exciting. That's the lure that the world has for us. Revealed truth puts limits on what Christ's followers may believe. Revealed goodness places limits on how we conduct ourselves. So yes, this is hard because it narrows our options. Yet, Some of you may be thinking right now, some of you who know your Bible, didn't Jesus say, my yoke is easy, my burden light? Huh? How do you you reconcile those two? Well, let me suggest at least a couple of explanations, there may be more, for this apparent contradiction. One is what I would call experiential perspective. When we experience things, hard things in life, or when we understand hard truths, it changes our perspectives and makes, us, makes the subsequent experiences that are hard seem easier. This came home to me. Uh, Christy and I got married right after college, and we were ready to go. I was accepted to law school in another city, and we went to visit there, and it just didn't seem right. You know, uh, you know didn't know anybody, didn't have a job. You know, I wasn't prepared at all for this. And so I did the only logical thing. I joined the Marine Corps, all right? And there God took me through some fairly hard experiences. Some of you are smiling, Billy. Uh, You know, I learned real responsibility, okay? I learned real accountability. Whenever somebody under my command screwed up, I got yelled at, okay? In addition to all that, life was going on for Christy and me. You know, things like having a child, having a miscarriage, and then having another child. All these things happening during times when I was often away for long periods of time. Then when I came back and started law school, I felt like the world had been lifted off my shoulders. It was actually easy. Had I not done that, taken that route, I really questioned whether I would have made it, given our choices in life. It was, it was freeing in a very strange way. Uh, so when God takes us through those trials and hard things and even temptation, it trains, it toughens us, it grows us, it gives us calluses, so to speak, so that we're not overwhelmed when we're challenged the next time. He allows those trials because he loves us and he wants his burden to seem easy. But secondly, Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is is light in a comparative perspective way. When we compare it to the weight of sin, it is so much easier and lighter. Guilt can be debilitating. If you're in bondage, it's difficult, if not impossible, to experience true freedom and joy. So compared to being a slave to sin, Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. Yet, 
compared to the broad road that others take, it's still narrow. Now, let's talk about the other road. Um, When I consider the broad road, I just kind of naturally think about the word Broadway, okay? Lots of cities have a street called Broadway. Kansas City does. And I remember standing on Broadway in Kansas City and noticing how broad it really was, okay? Uh, Now, let me make a qualifier here. If you have lived or worked on a street called Broadway, that's different than being on Broadway. I'm using it metaphorically, so don't feel like I'm criticizing you for choosing to live there or to work there, okay? Let's just get beyond that. Uh, But let's consider the experience of those living on Broadway, okay? For all of its glitter and attractiveness, what is the end? What do they have to show for it? For those who the world calls successful, they may have a nice home, a nice car, fashionable clothes, 1.9 kids, perhaps some fame or praise of others, maybe even some awards and recognition and honor for charitable work or philanthropy. But basically, those people are living from one pleasure, one honor, one toy to the next. Then what? What is the real value in those things the world lifts up? In referring to the former life of converted believers, Paul asked them to look back at the end product of their former lives in Romans 6. He said, when you were slaves of sin, you were free from the limitations of righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Peter likewise warns in 1 Peter 1, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers. The King James translates the term aimless conduct as vain conversation. In other words, empty Life on Broadway is empty without purpose, both intellectually and morally. Compared to the life portrayed in the Sermon on the Mount, you see the great contrast. You know, unbelievers, don't mean to be insensitive here, but unbelievers have a disability. Did you know that? They are all blinded by Satan to the glory and magnificence of the Christian life. Paul says in Romans 1 that believers are with Unbelievers are without excuse because the truth has been shown to them by the general revelation of creation. When you look up in the sky, you've got no excuse. You know somebody had to put that there. And, he says in, first, in 2 Corinthians 4, the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, Satan, has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So this is the character of the two roads. It's highlighted throughout the epistles, whose authors, in effect, ask, why would you choose any other than the narrow road? It's a no-brainer. And this leads us to the next reason that Jesus provides for us. That is to consider 
your end? To where does each road lead? What is the destination? Um, Has anybody seen a poster that says, life is a journey, not a destination? Okay? You've all seen those. Because when I looked up those two words for pictures, that's all there is. That's all it says. Um, Now, there's nothing wrong with talking about your journey through a particular trial and how God used you or saved you or punished you or whatever as part of your testimony. Nothing wrong with how God works in our lives along the road. However, we want to think long about this. How long are you on the journey? Scripture says it's like a vapor. How long are you at the destination, one or the other? Scripture says it's eternity. Life, let me say something that may seem a little confrontive uh, to contemporary culture. Life, Life is not all about the journey. Rather, the journey is all about the destination. When one testifies to how God works in her life, It's all meaningless if it's divorced from the context of where that work, that road, is taking her. Without a destination, it's just a diary or an account of no consequence about being happy today. Let me be just slightly more direct. The man who does not consider his destination is a fool. If you're a person who just lives in life, without a thought about where that life is taking you. By definition, you're just wandering. You are lost. If only we could get people who are lost to see that they're lost, they don't know where they're going, they might start to think, and things might go much better for them. If a person does not make a conscious decision or choose in their way, he is on Broadway And according to Jesus, he is headed for destruction. In Romans 6, Paul warns that the wages of sin is death. Pretty sobering to think of all the people that you and I know who are just quite happy enjoying life without the constraints of following Jesus. Now, fast forward to their deathbed. To what have they got to look forward. Fear, torment, destruction. This may be why we rarely hear about the deathbed statements of people that the world considers successful. So, how about the alternative, the narrow way? Jesus said it leads to life. It gives new life, new desires, a whole new perspective on life. Whether God gives you a life of relative comfort or agonizing pain and trial according to his plan, the saved are destined for glory and indestructibility. Peter calls the outlook on the narrow road a living hope that leads to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, thankfully, reserved in heaven for you. 
These are two very different destinations. And believe me, it makes all the difference, not only in the world, but in eternity. Finally, the greatest argument that Jesus gives us and the greatest inducement to go through the straight gate and follow the narrow road is this. With whom are you traveling? Now, you may have to leave behind many who love, who you love and that love you. In a sense, you even have to leave yourself, that is, your old self, behind. You may feel lonely and isolated on the road. To be sure, there are fewer on that road than are on Broadway. We're told few find it. Those on the road, look at this, your fellow travelers, they're called a peculiar people. But most importantly, we should be putting our focus on the one that's ahead of us, the one who said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This is an invitation to live and be like Jesus, to become more and more what he was on earth, to walk in his footsteps. If we stop and think about what we leave behind, the suffering and trials we may experience, and instead focus on him, that we will be with him in eternity and we will look him in the face. That is enough. That is enough. What other reason could we want? I want to use the balance of our time uh, to talk about some issues or problems or troubling questions that have come up about this passage. Okay? Some of this just requires a little thinking through, but some of it may be really troubling. Okay? So the first one is, does Jesus teach here that there's a neutral position that prior to this point of decision, we were neither good nor bad? So the metaphor that Jesus uses here is that of deciding on a particular gate and a chosen road. And this apply, implies, again, metaphorically, that there's a fork. And prior to that fork, maybe we can travel along with our moral transmission in neutral. Okay? Now, that logic is troubling for good reason. It further implies that we start our journey at birth without moral culpability, without sin. Now, there are many bunny trails here. Okay? How about innocent as babes? All right, moms, how long does that last? Okay? Or how about the debate between nature versus nurture? Okay? And I want to tell you, I believe strongly in both. But it's not what you and I think that's important. It's what Scripture says. Uh, we must always interpret difficult Scripture with Scripture. God's Word makes clear that we are born with a sin nature passed down to us from Adam. That nature rears its ugly head early in life, even with the best of parenting. That nature, uh, e but put even more strongly, we are born children of the world. And in other place, it says children of the devil. And we stay that way until we become children of God. So it might be more accurate if we're looking at this 
from a theological perspective, to say that we start life on Broadway. And our decision is whether we will enter the straight gate and follow the narrow way or stay on Broadway. That raises the question, maybe, why did Jesus even mention the wide gate through which we enter Broadway? Well, the answer lies in the fact that he's a great teacher, and teachers use devices, and this one is a metaphor or an illustration, the gates and the roads. And like almost all metaphors, this one breaks down at some level. Uh, This one makes the point that there is a life-altering decision to be made. And that decision, if it's not for Christ, if a person is not born again, he remains as he was at his natural birth, a sinner headed for destruction. In other words, if you're on the road, if you're on Broadway, and you make no decision, that is a decision, a fatal one. Another question with which people who read the Bible have sometimes struggled with is whether we essentially save ourselves by the the decision and or the action of walking down the narrow road. But Scripture teaches us that we're justified by faith, saved by grace, through faith, not of works, saved by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. So don't get caught up in overthinking this. This is simply a matter of proper categorization. It's clear that we cannot earn our salvation by works, by saying, by thinking, by doing anything. It's also clear that it takes a conscious decision, usually called faith, which is an acceptance of his invitation to walk through the straight gate and down the narrow road. That faith decision is evidenced and announced by our actions of obedience, following Jesus on the narrow road, or as James puts it, our works. Remember? Faith without works is dead. Another facet of this question is that the text in Matthew 5, 1 says, uh, And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. You guys remember that. Of course, it's only been four years. And so, uh, uh, I have said throughout this series that the Sermon on the Mount is directed at his disciples, implying believers. However, here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the exhortation to enter the straight gate and walk the narrow road raises the question as to whether there may have been disingenuous or fake disciples in the crowd. It could also be more subtle. Is it possible for someone to think that they are saved but be mistaken? Was it possible that within the group called his disciples that there were some who did not truly believe were not on the narrow road? Was Judas a disciple? Certainly called one, wasn't he? Again, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And as we look at the context here, we see that Jesus is concerned with folks who appear to be disciples but are not in truth his followers. You read the passage after verses 13 and 14, the first thing he talks about is false prophets. Presumably people who appear to be disciples, maybe even leaders, but yet they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Then he goes on to talk about the confusion over trees and the fruit that they bear, a clear statement that folks, what folks do is more important than what they say. And then he carries on with the theme with one of the most terrifying passages in the whole Word of God. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And then when some brag about the things that they've done in the name of Jesus, he responds, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This came up when Mike and I met with a guy uh, a while back. And he works in international stuff, and, and he was so proud of the fact that he could unite Christians and Muslims just by mentioning the name of Jesus. And they all go, yeah, Jesus. You know, calling on the name of Jesus isn't it. Okay, and there are many who have and used his name. But they're not going to be there. Then if you read the end of chapter 7... What's the concluding point? It's the people, one guy builds his house on the sand, another one on the rock. Okay? Clearly, they both build houses. One will fall, the other will stand. So I think you can see the thread here. Uh, It's not meant to create any insecurity about anyone's salvation. Rather, it's simply to exhort people to avoid self deception, and phoniness. He's telling those who claim his name, be sure of your faith and the road that you have chosen. Some truly don't get it. They have not taken the narrow road, and they're not children of the Father. And I'm saying this, he's not trying to create insecurity. He's giving what some would call today tough love, or speaking the truth in love. He's warning all that partial obedience is disobedience. That playing church is not sufficient. He wants not part, but all of our hearts. And he makes this patently clear in Matthew 25 when he talks about the judgment and the separation of his sheep from the goats. And the implication there is that there's goats who want to slip by the shepherd, but it ain't going to work. Another issue is, does giving in to temptation take me directly, not to jail, but back to Broadway? Okay? The phrase, walking the straight and narrow, you've heard that many times, it comes directly from this passage. Okay? But another question of interest arises. Does this passage require perfection? In other words, what if we stray off the straight and narrow? as I suspect all of us have done. Does that mean we're back on Broadway? I would say no, emphatically, if you can say yes with confidence to some questions. And it may not be exactly this wording, but have you made a decision and committed to the way of life laid out in the sermon? Is that what you want and endeavor to be? Do you desire to be like Christ, knowing you'll never achieve his perfection? Are you hungering and thirsting, really hungering and thirsting, after his righteousness? If you're confident in that, you are saved and you can be confident in that salvation. But when we stray off the narrow road, as we are wont to do, there is a consequence. We break our fellowship, our communion, our connection with Christ. 
However, good news, all we have to do is confess and repent, and he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This restores the communion, and we continue down the narrow road. On the other hand, if you're not so sure about those questions, but you're honest enough to admit it, why wait? Why remain in that miserable condition? Because Jesus waits for you with open arms. All you have to do is humble yourself, give up your pride, come to him. I guarantee, I don't know when the day is coming, but you do not want to be singled out as a goat. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, Therefore, brethren, Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not salvation by works. It is simply a loving warning to avoid hypocrisy. Instead, make a commitment and live it out as best you can. Traveling the narrow road is not the cause, it's the result of that commitment and the evidence of your salvation. One last question that some Bible students have struggled with. Is Jesus saying here that most people are going to hell? You could certainly infer that. In fact, that question came up with Jesus in Luke 13. Then one said to him, Lord, Are there few who are saved? And listen to his answer. He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter, but will not be able. In other words, Jesus is saying, That is none of your beeswax. Okay? Leave that to God. We are to be concerned about whether we are certain that we have entered the straight gate and we're walking the narrow road in order that we might be a light to those on Broadway. And if you're certain of that, you will find the answer to that question when you get to see him face to face. Father, Lord God, you have given so much. But the greatest gift of all was your son on the cross that he might pay the full price for our sins. But Lord, obedience is difficult. It is on a narrow road that few are traveling and we are tempted to look back. Lord, help us to keep our focus on you and you only, not on the world. Lord, help our faith to be real. Roll up our sleeves. Not of works, Lord, but of simple obedience out of love and desire to follow. Father, we lift all this up to you and pray that you would do the work in each of our hearts to make us sure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.